says, and now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, if you do not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offering, your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. And then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts for the sake of our sanctification and his glory. You may be seated. Now let's bow before the Lord, going to his throne of grace, and ask him for help in our time of need. Our Father, we come before you now, acknowledging that you are great and mighty. You are great and greatly to be praised. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God who is exalted above all things. The angels around your throne cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, we are so undeserving of your love and your mercy and your amazing grace. And yet you give it so freely. Lord, we are those whom you have placed your affection on in eternity past. We are those whom you have called and set apart to be your people. A people for your possession, a people for your glory. And Lord, we have already read how it is that you accomplish that work. And it is by and in and through your truth your word. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Lord, would you send your spirit to work upon and within us, Lord, to cause us to be receptive to your holy truth? Would you, by the powerful working of your spirit, help us to put away every distraction, everything that would take our attention 
everything that would take our focus or devotion and cause us to place all of our attention upon you and your word. For Lord, this is the ordained means that you have to instruct, to teach, to encourage, to reprove, and to rebuke your people. So Lord, would we give your word the attention that you require of us? Would we supply the effort that you require of us in the process of sanctification? We know that it is you who are at work in us, but that we must labor and strive and toil. Lord, I pray and I ask that you would help us in this time. I pray and I ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see and to understand the meaning of your truth. I ask that you would humble our hearts. I ask that you would give me clarity of mind and, and make the words that are spoken clear. And pray that you would give us humble hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply this your word. Lord, may we make much of Christ today. For we are a priesthood only because our great high priest gave of his own life on the altar. We are your priesthood only because you have made us alive together with Christ who bore the wrath of the Father for our sin in our place at the cross. Lord, the mystery of the cross we cannot comprehend. The agony of your Son bearing the full weight of your wrath against sin. Can't comprehend it, but we can glory in the cross. We can rejoice in Christ, our Savior. We can submit to Him as our good shepherd. We can come to Him as the way, the truth, and the life. So Lord, would you draw us into Christ? Would you fix our gaze upon the Savior? Would you, by your Spirit, give clarity and power to your word? today. We ask this for your glory. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at Malachi chapter 2, the way that we really need to see this text is as that of a contrast. This is a contrast between fruitful and faithful ministry for the Lord and unfruitful and disobedient and rejected ministry as we see these priests offering that which is defiled and polluted and unacceptable to the Lord in service. We contrast the actions of ministry and the Lord's response. For the Lord will not bless, He will not add fruit to ministry that is not done according to His instruction. While the, the breadth of fruitfulness is never the best measure as to the faithfulness of ministry, we should always, always strive to see fruit. We strive to see fruit because we strive to see the Lord magnified by changing hearts through the preaching and teaching and living out of His Word. Our aim is to plant the Lord's Word in the hearts of our fellow people, both our fellow saints and those who are outside the faith. 
We plant the Word of God. We allow Him to water it. We allow Him to bring the fruit and the increase, and then His name is glorified. So while we never really measure based on fruitfulness, we always strive and aim to be those faithful ministers of God's Word that He will bless and through whom He will produce much fruit. In this comparison here between Levi and the priests of Malachi's day, the contrast is so clear. It's so clear. Levi turned many back from iniquity, but the priests of Israel in Malachi's day caused many to stumble by their instruction. This is not a light nor trivial matter to the Lord. The Lord sets us apart. He marks us out as His ambassadors, as His messengers, as the proclaimers of truth. He invests His truth in us so that we go out and proclaim it. So we go out and live it, and by living it, we proclaim it. We allow and cause many to see and be brought to Christ. And so the contrast of these ministries could not be more clear. One turns many back from iniquity, and the other causes many to stumble. It's no light thing to corrupt or pervert or misuse or misconstrue the Lord's Word. It's no light thing. In fact, it will earn the Lord's wrath and anger and opposition. The Lord has given us all we need to pursue this type of fruitful, faithful ministry. We already prayed about it. We've already talked about it and considered it in John 17. Christ is the chief example of faithful ministry. He is the great high priest, the one who is lifted up and exalted. We come under Him. We serve as He served. We follow His example. He's the perfect example of faithfulness. Dear friends, realize that Christ is also the perfect example of fruitfulness. He accomplished the exact will of His Father. The work was finished. It was complete. There was nothing left to do because Christ earned the fruit that the Father had foreordained for Him to accomplish. And Christ's Word, the Holy Scriptures, are sufficient. They are sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. So we have the example in Christ, and we have the Word in and through Christ and the Spirit breathing and producing the Holy Scriptures through men of old. And we serve as Christ's priest. We are His ministers set apart before the world to minister His Word to his people and to his sheep and to the lost in the world so that Christ may be magnified and that he may save those who are his. So effectively, what the Lord does here is he calls these priests to submit to the headship of Christ. For in their day, they had a high priest, but we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus Christ. So submit to the headship of Christ, repent of their sins, pursue righteousness, and proclaim the truth. It's a simple, straightforward instruction. 
There is no lack of clarity in what the Lord required of these priests, and there's no lack of clarity in what He requires of us. He requires us to serve Christ faithfully, walking uprightly and turning others from their sin by proclaiming the truth of the Word. Serve Christ faithfully by walking uprightly and proclaiming the truth of God's Word, whereby He turns sinners from their sin to repentance and faith. So that's really the primary purpose, the primary takeaway from this text is that we need to see how we do that, how we accomplish that. We see the, the examples of how not to do that. We see the warning of what God will do if we do that. And in the middle of that, we see this faithful example of Levi, a priest of God who he shows us was a model priest an example for us to follow. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 3 and considering the Lord's rebuke. The Lord's rebuke. He says, And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart, if you do not give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart going to rebuke your offspring. I'm going to spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. It's a stern, it's a harsh and severe rebuke of the Lord. Notice, firstly, it's very specific. The Lord has a very specific audience in mind. He says, this commandment is for you, O priests. This commandment is not for God's people. This is not for the ones for whom you are giving offerings. The worship of Israel has already been rebuked at the end of chapter 1. Now he says, and this is for you, priest. Listen up. Give your devoted attention. The Lord does not generically punish his people as a whole here. He points his fingers. He fixes his gaze and his attention directly at the priest, directly at the leaders of his people. And that's not a foreign concept to us living in the new covenant. Consider the Lord's moral qualifications for those whom he sets apart for church leadership. He he has a high standard of the men that he sets apart to be examples and to be leaders. James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such we will incur a stricter judgment. The Lord has a high standard for those that he sets apart to lead his people because he loves his sheep. Because we can't, as those God calls to lead, we can't live however we want to. And he says, priest, this instruction, this commandment, this rebuke is for you. The sins of godless leaders, hear this, the sins of godless leaders are not imputed to godly saints. But those sins of godless leaders can certainly bring hardship upon his people. Look at the global church today. The sins of godless leaders brings persecution and struggle and difficulty and hardship upon God's people across the globe, but those sins are not imputed to the saints. 
So the Lord gets their attention. I, I think strikingly, he gets their attention. And then, and then in verse 2, he says something, it's almost, it's unexpected. It's not what you would expect to see as you read all the way through verse 2. He says, if you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart, if you don't honor my name, then I will send the curse and I will curse your blessings. If he stopped there, we would say, yeah, we understand, we, we get it. But before he finishes that, the Lord stops and says, and you know what? You're not keeping the instruction. You're not giving me attention. You're not fearing my name. You're not taking the instruction to heart. And so I've already laid a curse at your feet. I've already cursed your blessings because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, friends, hear that and understand that the Lord sees directly to the heart. The Lord sees the depths of our souls. You may be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, a whitewashed tomb where you are clean on the outside, but inside you are full of dead man's bones. The Lord sees the heart. He saw the heart so clearly in these priests that he couldn't even finish his instruction before he said, and I've already laid a curse upon you because you are not listening to my instruction. Just imagine a picture of this. Use use a little bit of sanctified imagination. The Lord is instructing his priests, and they're sitting there nodding, listening, but inside they're dead. Inside they're cold. Inside they're full of malice. There's actually a picture in Scripture of that. His name is Judas Iscariot. He sat at Jesus' feet. He was a disciple of Christ, yet he was full of malice and sin and hatred. He sat at Christ's feet, but he's full of a cold, dead heart. That's what these priests were. Ask yourself, is that what I am? Do do I give the impression of being clean and having it all together on the outside? But internally, my heart is far from Christ. Maybe you're in Christ, but, but on the inside, your heart is not drawn to your Savior. Your heart is not drawn to His truth. You struggle to revere His name. You struggle to give attention to His Word. Are you like these priests? Am I like these priests? So the Lord sees their hearts. He interrupts His instruction. But that instruction, I think, can be instructive to us. What He lays out in verse 2, if you do not listen... If you do not take it to heart, if you do not give honor to my name. The Lord's instruction was simple. Listen, take it to heart, and respond in fear and reverence and obedience and devotion. Think about this almost like a parent instructing a child. You, you get down on their level. You might use your hand to gently pull their chin up to direct their eyes at you. you say, son... Are you listening? Are you hearing my instruction? You must give respect to your father or to your mother because that is the command of God's word. That is what the Lord is doing here. He's saying, you priests who are mine, are you listening? Are you respecting? Are you fearing? Is that fear changing your life? And clearly it's not because they could not even give attention to the Lord's instruction. This is not earth-shattering. This is basic Christian 
living. It's basic Christian living to give attention to God's Word, to take it to heart, and to respond with a heart that adores the Lord, and out of that adoration, your life is transformed. Basic Christian living. So again, come back to what we did a few moments ago. Ask yourself, am I like these priests? Do I, do I give full devotion to the Lord? Do I give full attention to His Word? Jesus said, if we love Him, we will obey His commands. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He didn't say, obey so that men will look at you and say, oh, what a high and mighty and good saint you are. He said, give attention, give devotion, live in such a way that glorifies the Lord because people see the way you live and they glorify God. Do we do that, church? Do we do that? Do we live in such a way that the Lord receives glory in the good things that we do? If the Lord is not glorified in our good works, then they're not really good works. Examine your heart. Examine your life. Examine the way that people interact with you. Are you constantly being built up when you do something that should honor the Lord? Or do people see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven? So the priest obviously failed the Lord's command, and he says, I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking the instruction to heart. So remember the the context here. The Jews have returned from their Babylonian captivity, and now they're being oppressed by the Persians. They're suffering greatly. They're suffering deeply. The Lord says, I will curse your blessings. That probably drew their hearts back to a former history of Israel, Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2, where the Lord said, If you diligently obey, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. He said, All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. If you obey, you will be blessed, you will be exalted, you will be above the nations. And yet God's people were suffering. They were under oppressive rule because they weren't obeying. Now, we know clearly, right, that there's not a one-to-one, you obey, your life will all be sunshine and roses. Obviously, the Lord refines and sanctifies His people through trial and difficulty. But in this old covenant, He told His people, if you obey, your nation will be blessed. The people were not obeying. Verse 3 said, Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I'm going to rebuke your offspring. Um, That word can also be translated as seed. I will rebuke your seed. And I think that might actually be uh, a more accurate translation. Back to Deuteronomy 28, which we just quoted. In the rest of that chapter, the Lord also told His people of the curse that would come upon them if they didn't obey. And verse 15 and following, he talks about how you will plant and sow many seeds, but your harvest will be small, and the locusts will come and take that harvest. I will curse your seed. I will curse 
your offering, your offspring, I will curse that which you desire and need for blessing. So the Lord says, I'm bringing a curse upon you, and likely that curse will come with this idea of a famine and the various sufferings that come with their crops yielding no produce. And verse 3 continues, and this is where it gets rather graphic. He says, And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Let's just suffice it to say here that the Lord promises to pollute the priest with their own pollution. I think that's clear, and I don't really have to go much further. He is going to pollute the priest with their own pollution. They were likely, you remember the sacrifices that they were giving that the Lord rejected from chapter 1, likely in that they were using some of the sacrifices for some type of feast, a feast that did not honor the Lord. And he says, I'm going to take this, this pollution that you offer, and I'm going to defile you with it. I'm going to pollute you with it, O priest. So the Lord burns in anger. He gives a harsh rebuke. Thus is the prerogative of the Lord God, right? He is God and we are not. He sets the standard. He meets out the justice. And he burns in anger. This rebuke is to the priest. The priests are the ones who are cursed, but let's understand this now. The priests are cursed, but it's all of God's people that suffer because of the curse upon the priest. So zone this in very tightly. We are all responsible for the holiness of the church. As a local church, we all share in the responsibility to ensure that we as God's people are holy. We're called to be individually holy, and we're called to be corporately holy. We must purge the sin and the evil and the unrighteousness from our midst. It starts in your own life. And it branches out to our relationships, branches out to holding one another accountable with patience and grace and love, holding one another accountable to the truth of God's Word. Whether in the pew, or I guess, or the chair, or in the pulpit, the Lord requires a purified people. The Lord requires a purified people. We will not advance in ministry, in fruitfulness, beyond the level to which we are faithful as a people. This church, the Lord's church, those who are bought by the blood of Christ, we will not advance beyond some certain ceiling if we cannot pursue a deeper holiness. And again, that, that requires all of us, all of us working together, all of us digging in and walking in the Word and walking in the Spirit and walking in the Lord's sufficient grace, doing life alongside one another so that we can be purified. We all share that responsibility. The Lord does not merely 
desire or require external purity. He requires purity that flows from the overflow of the heart. Purity from the overflow of your heart. So may we hear and heed this instruction of the Lord. Moving forward to verses 4 through 7, just as the Lord's rebuke was very clear, he also sets forth a clear example. So verses 4 through 7, the Lord's example. Then you will know, verse 4, that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord points back to his priestly covenant with Levi and Levi's descendants. And the Lord does this, and he gives us a reminder of his faithfulness to his covenant. He says, I've sent this commandment to you so that my covenant may continue. So that my covenant may continue. And the Lord's covenant with Levi, if you want to read, you can go look at Numbers chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 25 and see that this was a promise of a continual familial priesthood through these descendants. It was called the covenant of peace. The Reformation Study Bible has this to say about the covenant of peace. It says, the central thrust of Deuteronomy is to show the connection between the covenant obedience and life. Commitment to God leads to a full life. That's what's wrapped up in this covenant of peace that the Lord made with Levi and his people. Obedience to God leads to a full life. The Lord shows his faithfulness in this. See this and grasp this. This should be a comforting and a humbling reminder priests were utter failures. They had utterly rejected God's instruction. And yet the Lord says, here's my word. Here's my instruction. I give it to you so that my covenant will continue, which I think gives us an implication that some of the priests were going to repent. The Lord is keeping his end of the deal. We can pollute a covenant with the Lord, but the Lord always remains faithful. So while we may fail, while we may be unfaithful, the Lord is always faithful to his promises. He cannot deny himself. Dear friend, that should be a great, great comfort. Because as you examine your life, if you honestly examine your heart and your life, you will see complete, utter failure. If you see the depths of your heart, you will know, yes, I'm sanctified. Yes, the Lord is progressing me in godliness, but there's still work to do. 
there's still a lot of work to do. There is a, a great chasm between the holiness to which we are called and the holiness that we can actually achieve in life. But remember, dear saint, God is faithful to his covenant. He will keep you. So he reminds of his faithfulness, and then he sets forth what is just one of the clearest examples in Scripture we can see of a, a faithful minister of the Lord, a faithful priest. So you could certainly, I think, tie this in to say this is a faithful shepherd, a faithful pastor, but it's also a faithful saint because, again, we are all Christ priesthood. We are all priests in that way. So we see, I think, firstly, the steward's heart, the faithful steward's heart in verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him as an object of reverence. And here is the heart of, of Levi. It says, so he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. Minister of the Lord can be and can do many things. We, we, as those created in God's image, can have a great capacity to accomplish much. The Lord gives great oratory gifts to some people, and some people may use those to, to serve the Lord, or they may use them to serve their own agendas. But either way, if you do that without fearing the Lord, you've missed the mark. You can do whatever you want, but if you do not fear the Lord, you have missed the mark. Think about 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we know the fear of the Lord, because the fear of God is in us, we seek to persuade men to faith in Christ. So Paul's urgency, his honesty, his purity in ministry was because he feared God, do you fear the Lord? I hope we would say yes, but I hope we would also understand that we don't fear Him enough. We don't fear Him as purely and as unreservedly as we should. We must fear the Lord. Thomas Cranmer, the old Puritan, said, the learning of the Christian man begins with the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. John Trapp would say it this way, the fear of God is both a virtue and it is a keeper of other virtues. So fear of God is a virtue in and of itself, but it's the fear of God that must drive every other virtue. Just like the Lord's holiness affects all of his attributes, the fear of God must affect, it must bound everything that we do and every virtue that could describe us. If you, describe, if you are described as only being righteous and not fearfully righteous, you've really missed the mark. What if you are very patient or very kind, but people see that kindness and that patience and they don't see the fear of God? Then really, we're missing the mark. Fear of God is a virtue, but is a keeper, a bound, a help to all other virtues. All of the Christian life must be rooted in and grounded in 
and empowered by the fear of God. Fearing the Lord is really the first step in sanctification. Anything that happens, any sanctification that may appear that does not come under the authority, under the, in submission to a fearful heart and mind of God, is not really true sanctification. There's fear and there's love. Those must drive everything. We fear God, we love Him, and then we give our lives to Him in devotion. In verse 6, we can also see the example of Levi's life, his character, his virtue, his work, his ministry. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. True instruction was on his mouth. True instruction was on his mouth. What is true instruction? Psalm 119, verse 160, in one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The sum of God's word is truth. True instruction was on Levi's lips. It was in his mouth. What was on Levi's mouth? What was in his lips? It was the instruction of the whole truth, the whole counsel of God's Word, because the sum of God's Word is truth. Not only part of it, but all of it, because if we take a part, we will misconstrue it, we will misuse it, we will misapply it, but the sum of the Word is truth. Teaching the truth is required duty of a minister of the Lord, of a pastor, of an elder. But dear saying, it's a required duty of every follower of Christ that you proclaim Christ, that you proclaim the truth. The true instruction was on his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. As a Christian speaks, so too he must live. True instruction must be in and upon your mouth, and unrighteousness must never come from you. You must pursue peace with the Lord. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. It's a sacred and sobering thing to be a messenger of the Lord. The Lord's providence, Mike will, will dig us deeper in that in the next couple weeks at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, where we talk about being ambassadors of Christ. But it is a sacred and a sobering thing to be a messenger of the Lord. And what is required of you in that is that you speak the truth, that you stand upon truth, because you're a messenger. You're a delegate. You're an ambassador. You're one subservient to the one who sent you. You bring his message and his message alone. We also see the fruit of that type of ministry. True instruction was on his mouth. Unrighteousness was not upon his lips. He walked in peace and uprightness. And the fruit of that is that he turned many back from iniquity. 
This is where fruitfulness and faithfulness come together. Levi walked according to the Lord's commands, and the Lord blessed that. He turned many back from iniquity. Now, let's make clear before we leave that idea that the Lord does not always do that. There are countless examples in the Scriptures of those who faithfully were, were faithful messengers of Christ who did not see that type of fruit. But to Levi, the Lord granted that many would turn from their iniquity. So ask this, does the truthfulness and the clarity of your proclamation pave the way to repentance for others? Does the clarity and the truthfulness of your proclamation of the truth, both in word and in deed, does it clear out the way for those who hear you, those who observe your life, to repent and turn from their sins? Think about this, parents. Do your children observe your life, and does that lead them to say, oh, yes, that is what it looks like for someone to constantly repent of sin? Or do they look at you and think that you're a hypocrite? We know, we know what the answer to that can often be. But a faithful ministry, a faithful life will eventually, in the Lord's providence, turn many from iniquity. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Can people consider the result of your conduct and imitate your faith? Now, Hebrews, of course, is talking to the leaders in the church, but again, we can broaden that out. That principle can, be, can apply to all of us. Do people consider your life and say, that's a faithful saint. I want to follow them. That's a faithful saint. I want to follow them, not because I think they're great and wonderful, but because they'll lead me to Christ. They'll show me Christ. Their life is a reflection of the glory of Christ. Is that said of you? Could that even be considered of you? Is that said of me? Could that be considered of me. And lastly, in this example, at verse 7, we see, I think, the goal and the purpose of Levi in his ministry. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is a clear statement. This is a call to arms. It is a call to battle. The goal of the Christian should be the preservation of knowledge, the preservation of the truth. And that doesn't mean that we buy up all the copies of Bibles and have every app and know where to find the best translations online. That means that we live according to it. We preserve knowledge of the truth by devoting ourselves to God's Word and living it out in our lives. We preserve God's Word by ordering all of life around the truth. Now, that's what so distinctively marked the Puritans, that they were said to have lived all of life 
to the glory of God. There were no corners kept. There are no areas reserved that, that this is personal time. This is, this is my, my time for me. This is my time to do what I want. No, all of life to the glory of the Lord. And as the minister of God preserves knowledge, what should be the response of God's people? What should be our response? It should be to diligently seek that knowledge of the truth. We should eagerly receive instruction. And again, there's, there's implications to that to our corporate gatherings because the, the highlight of our corporate gathering is the instruction of God through His Word to us, His people. But again, this applies so broadly because we're all priests. We all are ministers of God's Word to one another. So when a fellow saint brings God's Word to you, receive it. Receive that fellow saint as a messenger of the Lord of hosts when they speak the truth to you. If you can't go to Scripture and reject what they say, then you need to submit to it as God's truth. First Timothy 2.2 says, The things that you have heard from me, entrust them to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. Dear friends, this should be our great goal as God's people, that His truth would be remembered and invested from one generation to the next, that we would entrust God's Word to faithful men, to faithful women, who will then be able to teach and instruct and entrust the Word to others. This is one of the great and high callings of the Christian life, that we preserve the truth, because dark days are coming. And if we don't stand upon God's word, we will fall at the first inkling of persecution. And trust the word to faithful men that they may be able to teach others. We should be able to go generations, and we pray to the Lord that we don't, but we should be able to go generations without copies of the Bible because it's so ingrained in our hearts and our lives. That only happens when you study it, when you read it. And when you apply it, you have to experience God's Word in your life. Again, the Puritans talked about that, experiential Christian living, where God's Word is worked out in and through you. That is how you preserve knowledge of the truth. So the Lord has given His rebuke. He has given this example. And then lastly, at verses 8 and 9, we see the Lord's discipline the Lord's discipline. But as for you, speaking to the priest, you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. Just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So the Lord kind of gives a, a three-pronged summary uh, of his rebuke and, and what brings the discipline upon these priests. He begins by saying, you have turned aside from the way. You have turned aside from the way. This, this was a common thing to the Levite priesthood of that day. Ezekiel 44, verse 10. 
The Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. The Levites went astray, the priests went astray, and they will bear the punishment of their iniquity. The opposite of turning away from the Lord can be seen in Psalm 18. There the psalmist writes in verse 21, I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. So that's the contrast. You keep the ways of the Lord and stay near Him, or you wickedly depart from the way of the Lord and you turn aside from the truth. The priest had wickedly turned aside from the Lord, and without repentance, they will bear the full punishment of that sin. Not only did they turn away, but they also caused many to stumble. They caused many to stumble by their instruction. And we must understand here that the Lord reserves a special discipline and a special wrath for those who misuse and abuse the word to abuse God's sheep. Think about Ezekiel 34. Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Those shepherds were feeding on God's people, and the Lord says, I will remove them. You have no chance for repentance. I am removing the sheep from you. You will no longer be a shepherd to whom much is given Much is expected, and much is required. Mishandling of God's Word should be a fearful thing to those who teach and preach the truth. The priests turned aside, they taught falsely, and ultimately they corrupted God's covenant with Levi. You have corrupted the covenant, says the Lord of hosts. You know, it's interesting doesn't say they broke the covenant because the covenant couldn't be broken. They corrupted it. They defiled it. Nehemiah 13, 29 says, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. This should be a fearful and sobering thing. We are God's priesthood, and we can defile that covenant. We can defile our calling as the priest of God if we give our lives to sin. So it should be fearful and sobering to consider this idea of corrupting the Lord's covenant. So they've corrupted the covenant. The Lord says in verse 9, so I have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in the instruction." So what's the Lord's discipline? He makes the priest despised and abased before all the people. They're publicly humiliated. They're publicly shamed because they've rejected the truth. They've abused God's sheep. They have fallen short of God's calling, and he will publicly shame and reject and despise them. That's the Lord's protection of his people that those who abuse the sheep will be despised and abased by the Lord before all people. So we must understand the call of the Lord. We are to be fruitful 
because we're being faithful. We don't aim for that fruitfulness. We don't, and we have to be careful in that aim for fruitfulness because we don't want to be driven by the desire to see increase or, or see the Lord add blessing to our number. We should be driven by the desire to be faithful and driven by the desire to see the Lord bring many to His kingdom. Those who are faithful to the Lord produce fruit. We labor in God's field. The Lord's field consists of the saints, and it consists of sinners, those who are still not in Christ. That is the field in which we labor. We labor to evangelize the lost and to disciple the saved. If we rightly proclaim the word, we will see fruit. We know what fruit looks like. The fruit of God is personal godliness, and it's those to whom we minister turning away from iniquity. So is that what marks your life? Are you one, as Levi was, who fears and reveres the Lord? Are your words marked by truth and godliness or by ungodliness and partiality? Do the godly seek to hear God's word from you? Because Levi, the faithful priest, they sought to hear the instruction that Levi gave. Does your instruction suit the fancy of the lost, of those who want to remain in sin. By the standard of God's word, do you live in such a way that his covenant with his people may continue? Or do you corrupt and defile yourself and thereby corrupt and defile the Lord's covenant by giving yourself to sin? And that's not just sins of immorality, but any type of sin, anything that defiles the saint of God, anything that does not measure up to God's holy standard. We're all priests of the Lord. We're priests under the great high priest. And with all this instruction, with, with all this exhortation of what we are to do, dear friends, let's end on this mark that we serve the great high priest, the one who gave his life for us, the one who shed his blood so that we could be washed and we respond to that death with devotion and obedience and faithfulness. We honor the Savior by proclaiming His truth and living according to His commands. May we do that by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would indeed write your word upon our hearts. I pray that you, would, that you would take your truth and plant it within us, that you would help us to understand and to receive and to apply the truth of your word. Pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Pray that there be, if there be any grievous way in us, that you would lead us in the way of everlasting life. Pray that you would cause your truth to bear fruit in us, your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we...
come to the time of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. And this is a fitting response. It's a fitting reminder, a fitting follow-on to that remembrance of our standing of, as being priest under Christ, the great high priest. Jesus offered himself. The great high priest gave of him himself his own life, perfect and unpolluted on the altar of God to pay the penalty that was due us. He shed his blood. His body was broken so that we could be redeemed, so that he could make us into a holy priesthood. Lord's Supper is a constant reminder of the costly sacrifice of Christ constant reminder of the costly sacrifice of Christ. We remember and proclaim his death until he comes when we come and partake of the bread and the cup. So, so may the Lord bring us to this table with humility, with sober-mindedness, but also with joy and with joyful, rejoicing hearts because we remember what Christ accomplished, the work that he finished. Now, you, I think, are all familiar with um, how we practice communion here. Um, if you have been baptized, if you're in the Lord, if you are actively walking with the Lord and in submission to Him with no unrepentant and known sin in your life, we invite you to come to the table to partake and, and to proclaim. We partake and we proclaim. And if you're walking with the Lord in humble repentance... We invite you to come and join us. But it's a weighty matter. It's a serious matter that deserves our, our considering of our lives. We, we recall in 1 Corinthians where the Corinthians were taking the supper in an unworthy manner. And the Lord was punishing them. There were some who were sick and some who even had died because of the unworthy way in which they came to the table. So may we come with humble and pure hearts hearts that are ready to proclaim Christ. And with that, I want to give us a few moments to pray, to, to pray silently, to confess sin, and to ask the Lord to help you be ready to come to this table. So let's pray silently, and then in a few moments I will break that silence with a prayer, and then we'll come to the table.